Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. In August 1943, on the eve of the Allied invasion of Italy, Allied bombs threatened Michelangelo's David and nearly destroyed Leonardo da Vinci's The Last Supper. In this lecture, recorded on May 19, 2013, at the National Gallery of Art, best-selling author of The Monuments Men, Robert M. Edsel, tells the blockbuster story of the race to save the world's greatest masterpieces. Edsel's new book, Saving Italy, The Race to Rescue a Nation's Treasures from the Nazis, follows monuments officers as they search for the location of billions of dollars of missing artwork taken from the great museums in Florence and Naples. It's a wonderful opportunity to be back at our nation's museum, the National Gallery of Art. Uh, for those of you who perhaps haven't had a chance to travel around the world and see some of the other national galleries that uh, represent holdings of other nations, uh, and for those of you who have, uh, this is one of the world's, one of the handful of the world's great, extraordinary museums. And when you consider that it was only opened in March 1941, unlike these other national museums that have been around for centuries, the achievement of the founders of this museum, of Andrew Mellon, um, Sam Cress, with his incredible donations, and so many of their friends to make sure that this was available to our country, a new country, is really quite an achievement. It's always an honor for me to come here as a visitor, and in particular today, to tell you about the story of Saving Italy. The story began for me some 16, 17 years ago when I moved to Florence in 1996. Uh, in 1997, I found myself walking across the Ponte Vecchio Bridge, the only bridge not destroyed by the Nazis when they fled the city in August 1944. And I wondered, how was it in the face of the most destructive conflict in history, the loss of some 65 million people, so many of the great cultural treasures and museums survived, in particular in Italy, and who were the people that saved them? And it led me to this journey that has brought me here before you today. Our story begins in May 1938, when Adolf Hitler and other Nazi party officials make their first formal state visit to Italy. They walk through the great history of the Colosseum and make a visit to the Villa Borghese to look at this wonderful sculpture by Canova, but the last day, they allocate 10 hours to visit the city of Florence. And out of that 10 hours, uh, two were allocated to going to see the great works of art in the Pitti and the Uffizi and Bargello Museums. After driving into the Piazza Sonorio, where Hitler and Mussolini were greeted by thousands of cheering people, they went up on the balcony and overlooked and shared, the Fuhrer shared with the audience below the news of this um, Axis pact of steel and his vision for what Europe was about to become. They then began this walking tour, starting in the Pitti Palace on the south side of the Arno, studying some of the great paintings there, which Hitler had never seen before. They walked over the Vasari Quarter, crossing the Ponte Vecchio Bridge over the Arno. And for Adolf Hitler, a failed student of architecture and art, having been rejected by the Vienna Academy of Fine Arts as a teenager, as he entered the Uffizi and walked the galleries, he felt an artist among artists. And it was here that this vision of his gelled, the idea of rebuilding his hometown of Linz and creating at its center a cultural center built around a museum that would be known as the Linz Museum, or as it was referred to, the Fuhrer Museum. Hitler began making drawings that he studied with Albert Speer and other Nazi officials which led to this scale reproduction of his hometown and the vision that he had, which he shared with visitors constantly. This was an epiphany for Hitler walking through and seeing these works of art in Florence because he'd not seen them before. He'd, he'd observed them in books. He'd seen works of sculpture that were copies in the museums in Germany. But to see them in person really opened up his eyes to what was possible. In September 1939, with the Nazi invasion of Poland, museums throughout Europe closed and removed their works of art to get them outside the cities out of concern for Allied bombing. You saw a short clip of works being moved outside the Louvre. Some 400,000 works of art moved to area chateau, 
And the same took place in Italy. Works of art from the major cities removed to countryside villas and castles. Works in Venice loaded onto barges and taken and driven around the country trying to get them outside the cities. This too took place in Florence, but of course certain works couldn't be moved. The David, due to its size and weight, was entombed in brick, creating this silo effect, uh, along with the adjacent sculptures of his known as the slaves. The great concern by Florentine officials being that Allied bombs might hit the roof of the Academia and cause the roof to collapse, and they could only hope that this protective cover would deflect away such an event. The officials in Milan were no less concerned about Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper. They placed sandbags and scaffolding braced in place by metal poles on both sides of the north wall of this dining hall or refectory, worried that the Allied bombing might eventually engulf Milan, and their fears were, were quite well-founded. The British and American leaders, frustrated at the slow pace of surrender discussions or armistice discussions with Italy, in August 1943, made the decision, according to Winston Churchill, to give the Italians all manner of hell. And the decision was made to bomb the industrial cities of Northern Europe, including Milan. Because the Allied, because American Army Air Force stationed in North Africa was unable to reach this far, the British bombers that had been bombing Germany um, swung south of the Alps and used their technology, which was firebombing, aiming for the cultural center of the city without regard to what the consequences might be. And one of the bombs landed in the courtyard or cloister of Santa Maria della Grazia Church, blowing out the east wall of the refectory, the line up on the upper left, and leaving the Last Supper behind this scaffolding exposed to the elements. The bomb landed some 80 feet away, causing the roof to collapse, a true miracle that this work of art survived. And this next photograph, you'll see actually the sandbags there on the upper right side um, exposed to the elements. This diagram we found at the Soprintendenza's office in Milan is particularly interesting because you can see how close the sandbags are on the south and north sides of the north wall. And the more faint uh, structure that you see is the work that was constructed to try and support the wall. It would be two years before the Italian officials were able to completely reconstruct the wall and the roof, and the monuments officers arrived in Milan to supervise the removal, not knowing whether or not the wall would stand or the extent of damage to the Last Supper painted surface. About this time, a newspaper article appeared in the New York Times announcing that a group had been formed and a subsection created called Monuments, Fine Arts, and Archive Section. And it's worth noting underneath the bold print there that the ground central for the operation was going to be here at the National Gallery of Art. This was going to be the place that, in essence, supervised the selection of the men and women that volunteered to become monuments officers. Now, this is introducing a new kind of soldier to war, a soldier charged with saving not destroying. And the people that participated were museum directors, curators, artists, art historians, librarians, and architects. Average age about 40 years old. Most all had very accomplished careers. Many had families. They had every reason in the world to not volunteer to do this. But they wanted to serve. Those that had been professors in classrooms in universities had watched their class size dwindle down to nothing because the boys, as they referred to them, had either been drafted or had volunteered for military service, and they felt they could make a contribution too. The first monuments officer was this man, Mason Hammond, a classics professor from Harvard. And if there are any graduates in here from Harvard or anyone that's had a, one of their kids go to Harvard, uh, you would know who Mason Hammond is because from the late 1920s until 1999, when he died, with the exception of the war years, he read commencement every year. Now, Hammond thought he was being sent to North Africa. In fact, he was flown over there at the direction of President Roosevelt, who realized that the selection of the monuments officers was going to take some time, and inasmuch as the invasion of Sicily had already 
uh, was already underway, he felt it was important to just get even token presence over there. So Hammond was flown to North Africa, where he thought he was going to be a monuments officer. And this was only the beginning of months of snafus and problems the monuments officers had to confront. Not having vehicles, many of them hitchhiked around the country. Uh, When Hammond made an attempt to go to the library, realizing he was headed for Italy to do some research, military intelligence told him he couldn't because they were worried German spies might have the the Allies hand-tipped. So it was an effort to try and uh, execute this experiment, which had never been done before on such a scale, to protect cultural treasures uh, by trying to make sure Allied bombing was steered away from them and where damage took place to affect temporary repairs. Through the fall of 1943, other monuments officers arrived, one by one, including Perry Cott on the lower left, who, after the war, like so many other monuments officers, uh, went back to his museum, museum job, and in fact, he was one of the important curators of European paintings here at the National Gallery of Art. But by December 1943, beset with problems, the monuments officers, with the encouragement of the Chief of Staff of the Army, General Marshall, and others, encouraged General Eisenhower to take a different approach to communicating to his troops the priority being placed on the protection of cultural treasures. And Eisenhower issued this order, this directive, on December 29, 1943, a sea change in how wars were fought that said it was a responsibility not only of his commanders, but all troops to protect cultural treasures so much as war allows during uh, combat. Now, Eisenhower's order went on to point out, if it comes down to the lives of the men or an object, the lives of the men count infinitely more. But he observed that too oftentimes this was an excuse of convenience, something that he wanted to make sure he underscored with his commanders. His order was put to a severe test just six weeks later at the Battle of Monte Cassino, where Allied troops were pinned down, suffering extreme casualties in horrific weather conditions in an effort to try and get through the Leary Valley and make it to Rome, uh, where they would liberate the people in Rome. And the decision was made as a result of many Allied commanders being convinced that German forces had occupied this medieval abbey to bomb it in an effort to try and break the stalemate. This was a decision that was uh, highly debated by military commanders as a result of General Eisenhower's order. There was a considerable debate that took place. The monuments officers, in hindsight, largely weighed in on the favor and supporting the decision on the basis that this abbey sitting up on this mountaintop ridge with German troops, as it turned out, entrenched all around it but not occupying it, seemed to be mocking the soldiers below and the newspaper accounts reaching the United States and Great Britain about the loss of the boys over and over again from this fire up on the hill uh, argued in their view of something that had to be done to try and uh, preserve the morale of the troops. However, the battle continued for two and a half months more. It wasn't until May, late May, that the breakout occurred in June when the the, uh, Allied forces, U.S. Fifth Army and British Eighth Army, finally reach um, Rome. How many of you all have visited Florence? Let me see a show of hands. Very good. I see three people that haven't. (laughs) Check with me later. Maybe we can do something about that. I imagine most of you all probably arrived by train, and you're familiar with this church, the Santa Maria Novella Church, the namesake of the train station, located just 467 feet away. And in February 1944, in an effort to alleviate the pressure on Allied troops, the decision was made to bomb Florence and knock out the rail yards. And you see these rail yards right here in this area, just below where the church is. It was the most precise bombing mission of the war. All bombs landed inside the target. And just to give you a sense of orientation, you see the Arno River running from the top of the map to the bottom, east to west. And the two yellow circles are the Ponte Vecchio at top and the Ponte Santa Trinita just below it. This was worked out as a result of the effort of the monuments officers working with Allied air commanders, delineating all these white boxes showing things that positively, absolutely had to be avoided. 
but it was so important to, to uh, diminish the German ability to be moving materials through Florence that the effort was made. And this was the beginning of the successes of the monuments officers. There were still failures, things that were hit by accident, but this was an important moment. I tell the story of Saving Italy through the lives of two men in particular. One, a portrait painter and art professor from Yale known as Dean Keller. Dean Keller is a 42-year-old man. He was a student in Italy from 1926 to 29, having won the Prix de Rome. He was a student at the American Academy of Rome, and then returned to uh, take up his professorship at Yale, where he was a professor of drawings. And he went to war leaving behind his three-year-old boy, Dino. Now, Keller, in addition to trying to uh, do his job as the lone monuments officer uh, for Fifth Army, the, the uh, senior monuments officer for Fifth Army, tried to be the best dad he could to this boy. And realizing that his son couldn't read, Keller sent home dozens and dozens of drawings to try and help raise this child thousands of miles away. This was one of three birthdays that he would miss. Um, there are countless drawings of celebrating Christmas and Thanksgiving through these drawings. He tries to share what his job's like and showing him his effort to sew on his U.S. Fifth Army military patch on his uniform. The other monuments officer is a very, very different man, a man named Fred Hart, a 29-year-old budding art historian of great promise, a man uh, very impetuous, very emotional, who had a difficult upbringing. And these works of art in Florence and the artist uh, that, that uh, created them really helped Hart through some of these difficult periods. And he was determined to go there and do all he could to help save the works of art and away his destiny. By the time Keller and Hart are uh, moving north with the Allied advance all the way through the Leary Valley, out of Naples, up through Rome, liberated, very minimal damage, arriving in Siena with almost no damage. They reach the hills of Tuscany, and they hear a horrific report, the first of the major alarm bells set off with the monuments men, because a, uh, two British troops, and one including a reporter, arrive at this castle in Tuscany, Montegafoni, and go inside and discover hundreds of works of art masterpieces from the museums in Florence, the Uffizi and the Pitti, lying uncrated on the floor of this villa, leaning up against the wall. Now, the monuments officers had understood when they'd gone through Rome and met with the Italian officials that there was nothing to worry about because the Florentine superintendent had moved all the works of art from this and the other 37 villas housing paintings and sculpture by Michelangelo, by Leonardo, by Botticelli, and all the great masterworks that that city has, back into the city, out of harm's way. But in fact, uh, it was not so. Dean Keller arriving to see this important painting by Botticelli, Primavera, among those left behind. But they didn't know about the fate of the other 37, some of which were located behind enemy lines. And they had great fear and concern about the fate of Florence, uh, aware that the Germans were not going to just walk away from the city as they had done in Rome. German commander uh, Albert Kesselring, Field Marshal Kesselring, there on the right, standing on the Ponte Vecchio, you probably recognize the, uh, the storage cabinet there, is supervising the placement of demolition charges on these bridges. The one bridge that is designated to be saved is the Ponte Vecchio. During Hitler's visit in 1938 and again in 1940, as he walked through the Vasari Quarter over the Ponte Vecchio, uh, he had German art historians pointing out to him that the great and most important bridge in Florence was the Ponte Santa Trinita, a bridge designed by Aminati, influenced by Michelangelo. Some suggest even Michelangelo's great gift to the city of Florence. But Hitler felt he knew more. He was convinced that the bridge that was the most important and the one that he wanted saved ultimately was the Ponte Vecchio. And acting on these orders, Kesselring determined to try and retard the Allied advance. This was the scene that Allied troops witnessed when they reached the city. All of the other bridges blown up, 
citizens having to use the rubble to try and reach the two sides of the city. This drawing was done by Fred Hart after the war, and it's particularly illustrative. You see uh, everything in black designates what turned into moonscape, basically, rubble, as a result of the demolition charges. Let me further get you oriented. For all the ladies in the room, this is the mothership. This is the store of Ferragamo. (laughs) For all those that have suffered about the consequences of Ferragamo and tried to drink it away, Harry's Bar is down here. In an effort to try and prevent the destruction of the Ponte Vecchio, but to block both ends of the bridge, the Germans placed excessive charges on both sides of the Arno. And for those of you that have visited, you may recall how ugly the buildings are, in particular on the south side, um, just west of the Ponte Vecchio. And it's a consequence of that all having been erased. And those are all ugly post-war buildings that were built there. And what was erased really was the fingerprint of the city. The buildings that defined Florence, these medieval towers that were built in the 12th and 13th and 14th century. What areas you see in black was the prime real estate of the Renaissance. And so much of it erased that a New York Times reporter arriving uh, started his article saying, Florence as we knew it is no more. This, in fact, is how it looked a few days later. You see, uh, we're looking south towards the Pitti Palace. On each side of the uh, Ponte Vecchio, there's not a a shard of glass in any of the buildings. And the engineers have started to arrive and create a path to be able to begin removing the rubble and have a work area. And in their rush to do this, have just pushed a large amount of this 12th and 13th century buildings into the Arno just to get it out of the way. Now, the monuments officers reached Rome uh, to learn about some of the deliberate thefts that had taken place. This great painting by Titian, the Danae, part of the museum collection from Naples and Capodimonte. And Peter Bruegel's Blind Leading the Blind, just two of the works of art that the Germans had delivered to Rome at December 43 and January 44 as part of an elaborate propaganda effort to show that they were doing their job and trying to protect cultural treasures in Italy. But the uh, exigencies of the war precluded Rome officials, until the monuments officers arrive in June 1944, from conducting an inventory to go through these crates that are being delivered of the Naples works. And when they do go through them, they discover that a number of these important paintings, such as the two I showed you, are gone, are missing. In fact, it's been a deliberate theft, and they're able to tell this because a number of the crates have had works of art removed from one crate that they have an inventory schedule for and placed in a different crate. And the people that took it were the Hermann Goering Tank Division, determined to provide an exceptional group of gifts for their leader in Berlin. Fred Hart arrived in Florence shortly after the city was liberated in August 1944, desperate to find out information about where these other repositories were of works of art from the Florence Museums. And the person he knew he needed to find was a man named Giovanni Poggi. Poggi was the superintendente, or the superintendent of art, in Tuscany. And he was a very experienced man. He had, in fact, done this twice now, having protected Florence's treasures during World War I. He also had an interesting experience in 1913. Uh, I would think it's uh, without controversy that the three most famous works of art in the world, in fact, icons known as famously as the, the Leaning Tower of Pisa or the Statue of Liberty, would be Michelangelo's David, Leonardo's Last Supper, and Leonardo's painting of Mona Lisa. Saving Italy covers all three. And The Mona Lisa, you might wonder, why is that in this story in as much as it was part of the Louvre collection and moved around? Well, there was a museum employee at the Louvre in 1911 who was Italian, and he was determined to repatriate to his home country this great Italian painting by Leonardo, and he stole it. 
And it was a great source of, of uh, concern around the world, newspaper headline stories for the latter part of, 2000, of uh, 1911 to 1912 until December or so, until the latter part of 1913, when Giovanni Poggi, at the time the director of the Uffizi, was involved in a sting operation to recover the painting from this man at a hotel you all have probably driven by when you visited Florence called the Hotel Giaconda. It wasn't called that before the theft. It was called that as a result of the theft. And there under the bed, in a case, was the painting. And Poggi took it to the Uffizi, where you see it now, and put it on temporary display before taking it back to Paris in December 1913. Poggi had quite a story to tell Fred Hart. He explained and introduced to him by description an SS officer, also a German art protection officer, they were known as the Kuhnschutz, named Alexander Langsdorf. Langsdorf was someone who had done some good work in trying to protect some of the works from Florence, but at the same time, as one OSS officer later said, it seemed that part of his heart, uh, at least half, belonged to the SS. Poggi explained that at, at uh, Langsdorff's direction, many of these great villas that housed the works of art were emptied, taking with them sculpture by Michelangelo, his Bacchus, Donatello St. George, this uh, Pietà by Bellini, Botticelli's Adoration, and two paintings by Cronach, paintings by a German painter widely admired by Adolf Hitler, during his visits in 1938 and 1940. These were just some of the 735 works taken in a theft that Fred Hart later described as uh, Florence suffering a robbery on a scale to dwarf the depredations of Napoleon, a complete cross-section of the Renaissance period in the work of these great artists. Langsdorff wasn't operating on his own. He was acting with the authority of a man largely overlooked uh, for his role in this story, SS General Carl Wolf. Wolf was the one that provided the trucks and the fuel and the manpower that enabled Langsdorff to remove these works of art from the countryside where ground combat was engulfing them. Wolf's a fascinating figure. He's well-educated. He's in a very... Uh, comes from almost an aristocratic background, tall man, blonde, this Aryan appearance that very much appealed to the Fuhrer. In fact, he was the SS liaison to the Fuhrer headquarters, having served as Heinrich Himmler, head of the SS, having served as his adjutant from 1936 to 1943. Wolf traveled uh, constantly with Himmler, in fact, to this concentration camp in Minsk, but this is one of Dozens of photos we've come across of them traveling around. Although he wasn't uh, shooting people at these concentration camps with the gun, he was periodically signing orders, enabling train transport for people headed to concentration camps and also trying to solve rail bottlenecks. Um, in September 1943, following Mussolini's removal from office in July, Adolf Hitler was irate. He was convinced that the Vatican was somehow involved in Mussolini's removal, and he ordered Wolf to go to Italy and be the senior SS commander there and go into the Vatican and remove works of art and documents and kidnap, and in fact, one German general later said at the trials at Nuremberg, kill Pope Pius XII. Now, Wolf was convinced this was a really bad idea. He was familiar enough with Italy to understand that the church and the Vatican in particular really were the fabric of the society there. They provided the structure. He was a man that was a great salesman. He'd been a banker and an advertising executive between the wars. He had extraordinary survival skills. And he realized, having first gone there in the fall of 1943, that in the months that would follow, People at the Vatican and other officials would need favors, and as head of the SS, he was in a position to grant them. But as the months passed and the war continued to go against Nazi Germany, 
Wolf also realized that favors run both ways, and he worked very hard to cultivate these ties, including an uh, unrecorded visit to see the Pope in May 1944, shortly before he left with German forces from Rome. As uh, the works of art were taken from the repositories around Florence, they moved north, up through Modena, up through Verona, up through Bolzano, into the northeast part of the country, an area known as the Alto Adige, or South, South Tyrolean area, a mountainous area up in the northeast, a very, very strange area atypical to Italy. The predominant language spoken is German. The people there do not consider themselves Italian, much more so Austrian. And it was a very, very clever choice because the, uh, having the works of art there put Wolf in a position that on the one hand, uh, the German forces could not be accused of moving the works of art out of Italy into the Reich. On the other hand, they were in an area uh, very favorable to the Germans and inaccessible to uh, Italian art officials clamoring to get their works of art. And this is how the paintings arrived. In fact, we know from Dean Keller's correspondence, it was a light drizzle this day. No tarps on the pictures, straw sitting in the backs of flatbed trucks, driving some 350 miles over a period of months, over bomb-cratered roads, oftentimes strafed by Allied pilots. This great painting by Signorelli from the Uffizi arriving, just one of the many hundreds of paintings that arrived at one of the two key repositories. By December 1944, General Wolfe and his survival skills are honed to a fine edge. While he was a a cultivated man, uh, he was a very, very poor student of biology. He was married to a woman who was brunette, and he had great expectations of having blonde-haired children. (laughs) That didn't work out as he planned, and after having appealed to the Fuhrer for permission to divorce, he remarried this lady, this was his second wife, and had children who, in fact, were indeed blonde. Being a father of two families, and by January 1945, realizing Nazi Germany's days were numbered, Wolf developed an elaborate plan that involved the secret surrender of all German forces in Italy, some one million men. It was a plan that involved him risking his life to put on civilian clothes and out of the eye of his leaders in Berlin, take a train into Zurich to meet with this man, head of the OSS, the precursor to the CIA, America's senior spymaster in Europe, Alan Dulles. Now, Dulles was under strict instructions from President Roosevelt that although he could listen to what Wolf had to say, he had no authorization at all to enter into any negotiations or strike any deals with Wolf or any other Nazi leaders, much less anyone from the SS. And he listened as Wolf outlined this plan and all the benefits that would accrue to the Allies by German forces laying down their arms. There were several perks that were attached to it, including the promised protection that the 350 to 400 Allied pilots that were in custody of SS forces, along with other political prisoners, would be protected. They would not be shot. That Hitler's scorched earth plans for northern Italian cities would be uh, ignored by Wolf and his troops. And he mentioned then that he had in his control two repositories containing some 700-plus works of art from Florence that he would turn over to the American army at the end of the war. Dulles swore to his grave that there was no deal struck with Wolf. Wolf did appear in Nuremberg at the end of the war, however, as a witness for the prosecution. He was not tried. He was not indicted. And I think uh, we spend a number of chapters in the book deciphering this extraordinary relationship and the number of times Wolf risks his life including uh, cars that are turning over, uh, strafed by American pilots, his jacket catching on fire, flying into Berlin 10 days before the Fuhrer commits suicide at treetop level, acts seemingly of a madman, but someone quite consciously taking these risks because he realizes if he doesn't make this deal, there is no other way out. Fred Hart, unaware of all of these activities, is beside himself 
out of fear and concern for the fate of the works of art from the Florentine Museums, which he has so greatly admired and studied all his life. He decides to take matters into his own hand and comes up with a plan. He contacts a man he's met several months earlier, an Italian-American OSS agent named Alessandro Caggiati, another figure overlooked in, uh, in the telling of this story. And Caggiati has a network of spies in northern Italy behind enemy lines, including a man who's got the perfect disguise, a priest, a, fe- a man known as Father Anelli. And Anelli is recruited to try and use his contacts to identify the location of these two art repositories to identify um, and, and hopefully uh, get some eyes there to watch and protect these works of art in the closing days of the war. Kajati has a problem, though. He's got to figure out a way to get Donanelli back across enemy lines and up in the northeastern portion of the country where they suspect these works might be. So they decide to fly him up there. However, Anelli, who's never flown before, is going to have two experiences that are unique. The other is he's not going to land either because he had to jump out of the plane with a parachute. (laughs) And the story proliferates that having jumped out and descended down to the ground, those in the back of the plane looked over and saw his prayer book still sitting there on the back of the plane bench. And the plane circled and they wrapped the prayer book in a rag, tied a rope around it, The plane banked, and they pushed it out and dropped it down to him, and it led to the legend of him being referred to by his parishioners, who were also partisans, as he was, as the flying priest. (laughs) On April 29th, General Wolf, standing on the right, uh, went to, um, was in Bolzano, but witnessed the Uh, beginning of the final stage of his plan being consummated, the signing of the surrender agreement of German forces as he had promised. This was announced on May 2nd. Um, This photo was taken a few days after that. It was the first surrender of German forces during World War II, all a result of this plan that Wolf had hatched with Dulles. Days later, word reaches Dean Keller about the location of the two repositories. And he drives up to the area in northern Italy and walks into this jail cell where he sees this great paintings by Rubens from the Uffizi, a split panel by Franz Floris, the Signorelli that you saw earlier, and other gold grounds and important works by Caravaggio and Michelangelo and others that have been taken there packed so tightly he couldn't get them out of the way to see all of the works of art. And there waiting to tender custody were the German art officers, the art protection officers, including Langsdorf, second man uh, on the right. That's Monuments Officer John Brian Ward Perkins, a British Monuments Officer on the right. And Langsdorf made a point of finding Fred Hart, uh, somewhat put out that it had taken the Allies so long to get there, something that did not set well with Fred, uh, and make a point to tell him that he was turning over custody per the orders of his commanding general, General Wolfe. This created a new challenge for Dean Keller and Fred Hart, which was this. How do you go about getting all of these works of art back where they belong, so many of which had not been crated? Wartime shortages made finding lumber exceedingly difficult, Workers were tough to find, and when you found them, you had to figure out how to scrounge up enough food to be able to feed them. And the process took several months because there were no operational trains in Italy, all of the bridges crossing the rivers having been blown up by Allied bombing, trying to impede the Nazi retreat, and those that we missed blown up by the Germans as they fled north. But in July, after having supervised the crating and Uh, removal of these works of art, including Michelangelo's Bacchus, which is in this um, case that Keller supervised the removal of, the works of art arrived in Florence to the Campo de Marti rail yards. Now, Keller, before departing, had to fill out a way bill, and he put down art masterpieces, and under value, he put down $500 million. Now, that was $500 million in 1945 dollars, And it's somewhat of a silly number anyway, because these works of art 
are truly priceless. And you see Fred Hart um, slumped over there in the center signing the receipt, Poggi standing on the left and Keller standing there with his ledger book as they're going off, ticking off the inventory to make sure the transfer is complete. And so in July, uh, around the 20th, 21st, uh, to the cheering thousands in their hometown, standing in the Piazza Sonoria, these trucks arrive to begin the return of the works of art to the museums of Florence, a joyous moment. Certainly, Dean Keller, Fred Hart, and the other 40 or so monuments officers that served in Italy by the end of the war will be remembered for saving these masterpieces that now reside back home in the Florence museums. But I think Dean Keller and Fred Hart's contribution far exceeds that in a much more permanent way. Dean Keller arrived to Pisa in August 1944. Today, the majority of people that go see Pisa go to see the Leaning Tower on your left. But it was not always that way. Before World War II, the majority of people went to Pisa to see the Campo Santo here on the right, the city's medieval cemetery built in 1278. It housed all the great leaders from Pisa. And its great interest to visitors were the 20,000 square feet of frescoes that lined the interior walls, some 3,000 more square feet of frescoes than exist on the painted surfaces in the Sistine Chapel. The problem is the building you're looking at should have a roof. And during combat operations, an artillery round fell short and ignited the fire. The roof was made of lead. The lead melted, and it bled down the sides of the walls. And this was the scene of horror that Dean Keller arrived to, with so many of the frescoes blistered and bubbling, millions of fragments lying on the ground. He made a call to his senior commander, General Hume, and said, if ever there was a purpose for having a Monuments, Fine Arts, and Archives section, this is it. We need help. And Army engineers came by the dozens. Florentine fresco specialists were brought up by car. Food was made available and housing for these people. And then the work began to scoop up these pieces and put them in the wheelbarrows. And for those of you that visit Pisa today, you can go over to their uh, opera where they're continuing to piece together these fragments and place them on wooden boards and hang them back in the area where they once hung. This is a painting from the 19th century of a portion of the Campo Santo, the mandala of Campo Santo. And this is how it appeared before the war. This is what it looked like when Dean Keller arrived. Keller worked with the Army engineers to construct these temporary shelters to ensure that once the rain started falling, uh, that the frescoes that were still on the wall would be protected. In fact, he was so proud of this, he wrote to his wife in one of his letters, many of which we refer to, this uh, remarkable correspondence he's maintained with his family, how proud he was that the first fall rain had come and he could report that the frescoes of the Campo Santo were dry as a 16th century tibia. Throughout the war, as he wrote his wife and son, Dino, he promised that someday he would go back to Italy and take his family and let them see these experiences, visit these places which he'd been to. And in 1965, he made good on that promise and returned to the Campo Santo. And this is a photo with him and his oldest son, the boy who received all these drawings during the war, Dino. And that boy who received them knew what to do in 1992 when his father died, that there was only one place that was appropriate for his father's remains. And it took him and other very dedicated people in Pisa eight years working with the Italian government to make it possible for Dean Keller's remains to be buried at the Campo Santo, the only non-Italian ever to be buried there, an extraordinary honor an expression of gratitude by the people of Pisa and Italians everywhere for the role this man had in saving just one of that country's great cultural treasures. The accomplishments of Fred Hart were no less. Hart had an acute understanding about the history of Florence, and he did 
battle with the army engineers operating what he referred to as the devouring bulldozers who were on a mission to just clear space without regard to whether a damaged building was damaged beyond repair or whether, in fact, it could be repaired. And Hart had an understanding about what the difference was. This uh, great tower, the Torre de Amide, on the north side of the Ponte Vecchio, if you walk across the bridge and look up, it's right there on your left. Uh, The photo on the left is how it looked before the war. The photo on the right is how it looked when Fred Hart arrived, minus the, uh, the stilts there that he supervised, making sure had been placed to support the structure. And as a result of Fred Hart, this tower and others survived the war. In fact, if you go there today, it looks largely like it does on the left side. And if you uh, pay any attention, it doesn't, you don't need binoculars. It's easy to see the discoloration in brick from that which is 60 years old, uh, from that which is about 800 years old on the left. But Fred Hart wasn't finished after the war. With the horrific floods in November 1966, he traveled around the country incessantly, as did other monuments officers, determined to try and help raise funds and raise public awareness about the damage to the great cultural treasures, which he and Keller and others had struggled so mightily at the risk of their lives so often to save during a world war now under attack by the rising Arno River. And uh, some years after Dean Keller, Fred Hart died. And fittingly, his companion of 30 years, Gene Markowski, and others who loved him and knew him, knew where he should be placed. And it was at the church of San Miniato, a place that Fred had written about and loved so much, overlooking the city that he loved, that his remains were placed. And I am very pleased to tell all of you all uh, that man, Gene Markowski, and so many of Fred's friends are here with us today, and I'd like to just pause and, Gene, wherever you are, recognize you. Don't be modest. <clears throat> this is one of the joys of my travel as I get to uh, see these friends who have been so instrumental in helping us uh, be able to find these key pieces of information and these intimate details of these remarkable men and women that are essential to telling the story so that those that love art and those that aspire to understand art and people that love just a good story are able to read and understand this remarkable part of our history. In the course of my work over these many years now, I've interviewed 17 monuments officers. Uh, There are now five still with us, 12 have passed, One woman is alive, she's British, four men, including Bernie Taper. And I've asked each one of them uh, oftentimes the same questions. And one question I've asked each of them is, is art worth a life? And this was the answer that Bernie gave me when I asked him. I remember having a very boozy discussion with, with Stuart Leonard in a Berlin apartment one night. Which is of more value, a work of art or a human life? And I was saying human being, and he was saying work of art, and we got, that's why we had another drink, and then we had another drink. And I said, well, would you give your life to save Chartres Cathedral? And he said, sure. And then he said, and actually, I had that choice to make because there were bombs placed around Chartres Cathedral that uh, I as a bomb disposal expert, we came into Chart, and I was the one that had had to take them and dispose of them. So, uh, he he won his argument that way. In fact, those of you who have read um, my last book, The Monuments Men, know that uh, out of the 150 or so monuments officers that were in Europe at the end of the war, about 45 in Italy, 100 or so in northern Europe, ex-Italy, two monuments officers were killed during combat. Dean Keller had numerous close calls with booby-trapped buildings and archives and in museums. Uh, So this was a precarious undertaking on the part of these remarkable men. Now, I asked Bernie um, when I was out there recently, he lives in, out in Berkeley in California, and I had a chance to ask him, uh, I always love to stop in and revisit with these 
close friends. And I said, hey, Bernie, let me ask you some questions that uh, I may have asked you before, but is art worth a life? And he said, is there something wrong with your memory? (laughs) In fact, I remember that you asked me last time and you filmed it. And I said, well, I did, but maybe you'll think of something that you didn't remember to tell me. And he said, no, no, I told it all to you before. I told you about in a Berlin apartment having a very boozy conversation. I said, yes, yes, I remember all that. And then he said, you know, I was talking to Stuart Leonard about what it was like being in the bomb disposal unit. And Stuart Leonard said, well, there's one good thing about it. And I said, wait a minute, I never heard anything about that. And he said, well, uh, I asked Stuart, what in the world could be good about being in the bomb disposal unit? And he said, it's simple. You never have a superior officer looking over your shoulder. (laughs) But he went on to say that Stuart said it was all worth it because of the award that he received. And Bernie said, an award? Who in the world was there to give you an award? And he said, well, that's just the point. After we got those last bombs disassembled and out of there, I was in Chartres Cathedral for an hour by myself. So this story, like many of the others we gather, it's not going to redefine history, but it's an important important part of the mosaic of this remarkable legacy, and we're in a race against time to try and gather as much of it as we can. I didn't have a chance to meet or interview Dean Keller. I spent a lot of time with his youngest son, Bill, um, and many of his friends that were still living, in fact, some former students of his. And in our research going through his letters, I came across, in essence, his response to that question about his art worth a life. And Keller, I think, added a whole other dimension to Bernie's answer and that of many of the other monuments officers when he said that, in his opinion, the life of one American boy is worth infinitely more than any monument. However, Keller made a point of identifying a distinction between dying for a work of art versus dying defending a cause. And Dean Keller, like Fred Hart, And all of the monuments officers, including the two that did lose their lives, understood the risks that they were taking, but they believed in the cause and its importance. And I think that's the lasting message uh, that we should take with us. After the war, these monuments officers came home, and they resumed their careers, went back to their families, and in so many ways are responsible for having placed the United States on the world scene as the center of so many of the areas of culture and the arts. You should know that um, in addition to the great photographic collection here at the museum, uh, as was mentioned earlier, uh, some of the monuments officers' working papers are here at the gallery, including those of Fred Hart, which was something Gene Markowski made possible. And we have spent many a glorious hour coming to the gallery I must say it's always difficult for me because I have to walk past these unbelievable paintings that are here without looking because I'm being scurried back to the archive area and then uh, usually about closing time trying to siphon off and look at them on the way out. One of the paradoxes of my work, I used to be able to go to museums and enjoy seeing them. Now I seldom have the chance, but uh, it's a wonderful thing that we're back here today talking about these men and in particular Fred Hart, Perry Cott, and the others that played such an instrumental role. Unfortunately, uh, we've done a bad job as a nation remembering or even knowing who these heroes are. In fact, I remember a quote by President Kennedy that said, a nation reveals itself not only by the men it produces, but the men it honors and the men it remembers. And we've paid a horrible price for it as a nation, as we saw in the aftermath of the looting of the National Museum of Iraq in Baghdad in 2003. One of the things that uh, the foundation I created, the Monuments Men Foundation, which is the recipient of the National Humanities Medal, it's not something I received, it's the foundation and its work for trying to rescue the legacy of these men and women before it was gone and then put it to use. And I interviewed uh, recently Uh, a woman, a curator from the Museum of Minneapolis, who in 2004 was in uniform and went to Iraq to try and fix some of the problems that had been caused. And I asked her how important it is that we know about the Monuments Men 
and the difficulty we face as a result of not knowing in 2003, and this is what Corinne Wagner had to say. The looting of the Iraq Museum in 2003 caused a lot of anger. It wasn't just bad PR for us in Iraq. It was bad PR for us throughout the world. We have to be ever vigilant in trying to educate our elected leaders and the top of the military on the importance of protecting cultural property during armed conflict. And during World War II, that it, it was a emphasis area for the Supreme Allied Commander, General Eisenhower. He took great measures to do that, not just because it was the right thing to do, but because it was one of his tools in his toolkit to help win that war. Those of you that are uh, observing world events know about the great damages that are occurring in Syria and Apamea and in Aleppo, the wonderful Roman columns lining the desert with Syrian tanks driving across them, uh, gunfire being blasted at them to try and draw media attention, and the wonderful 10th century uh, minaret uh, in Umayyad that was destroyed just weeks ago. I want to close and share with you um, some words from General Eisenhower. I always find this an appropriate way to bring this remarkable story of these men and women to conclusion because uh, I have been so fortunate, the Monuments Men Foundation has been fortunate, to receive uh, remarkable attention from uh, very famous politicians, all of whom you know, and other organizations that have paid attention to the work that we've been doing. And uh, General Eisenhower, in June 1945, went to London to the city hall there, the Guild Hall, to give his first remarks after the end of the war uh, about what he thought about this and received this hero's welcome. You see people standing on the balconies, uh, wanting in the ledges, wanting to hear what the great general had to say. And as Eisenhower was wont to do, he deflected the credit to the men who he believed actually deserved it. And I think these are important words that he shared. The high sense of distinction I feel receiving this great honor is inescapably mingled with feelings of profound sadness. Humility must be the portion of any man earned in the blood of his followers and sacrifices of his friends. He may have given everything of his heart and mind to meet the spiritual and physical needs of his comrades. He may have written a chapter that will glow forever in the pages of military history. Still such a man, if he existed, would sadly face the facts that his honors cannot hide in his memories crosses marking the resting places of the dead. They cannot soothe the anguish of the widow or the orphan whose husband or father will not return. The only attitude with which a commander may with satisfaction receive the tributes of his friends is in the humble acknowledgement that no matter how unworthy he may be, his position is a symbol of great human forces that have labored arduously and successfully for a righteous cause. My righteous cause, one I hope you will embrace and help us spread the word, is the work of the Monuments Men and Women. Thank you very much. I'll take your questions now. The only thing that's hard about questions is the first one. Yes, ma'am. You don't have to yell. I'll repeat it for you. I can barely talk. That's okay. I'm perplexed as to why there is no mention of the CAD in the United States Army. All these men were G5s. They operated under our great contribution to World War II. We mounted division in each army. To deal with civilian populations. Of course, the main thrust of that was in the liberation of concentration camps and the, uh, the, the maintenance of displaced persons, which happens to be the subject of my dissertation. But certainly, we could mention this wonderful capacity of the Army, not as individuals, but to mount. The observation is that there's a group, uh, Civil Affairs Division, that uh, was the overarching group that the Monuments Men worked within. I mentioned General Hume, who was head of Civil Affairs in Italy. I talk about it extensively in all three of my books. Uh, and 
Unfortunately, I'm limited to an hour to try and go through the story as quickly as I can and embrace the audience. My message to you comes not as an author because I don't see myself that way. This is a cause for me. This is a passion I have because I lived in Europe and I was there in 2003 and 4 listening to the criticisms of our country uh, for our failure to go into Iraq and have plans and execute them to protect not just the museum but their national library, their national archives and others. And I was beginning to understand, I was at a nascent stage, about what we'd done with a handful of men and women with no technology and a war that cost 65 million people that lives. And I surely know that the men and women that we have in uniform today, they're so dedicated, but they take orders. They're not entrepreneurs. They're resourceful, but they're not entrepreneurs. And the orders have to come from the top. And that was the success of what took place in World War II. President Roosevelt, General Eisenhower made sure that this trite phrase or phrase that's become trite of winning hearts and minds, they understood that that comes through hard work and consistent performance. And if you show countries that you're in that you respect the things that they value, you don't have to understand them, you don't even have to like them, but you've got to show respect for them. And that was the success of what took place in World War II. And over and over again in these men and women's letters home during the war, They cite this time and time again about how shocked they are that there's people in France and people in Italy walking out of rubble that was days before their home, fearful of how they're going to be responded to. And in each case, and I tell some of these stories in Monuments Men, I tell it Saving Italy, people would come up to them and say, hey, look, you know, we understand this is what you had to do to get rid of the bad guys. If it's our home or freedom, we want our freedom. And they would watch these monuments officers then go to work, trying to effect what temporary repairs they could. And then, of course, at the end of the war, return all these works of art to the countries from which they were taken. A monumental effort in uh, northern Europe, some five million cultural objects returned to the countries from which they were stolen. Um, A far lesser number, but no less important in Italy. It's a point, it's a good point. I'm glad you made it. Yes, sir. Yeah. My my name is Jim Carr, I'm a Civil Affairs Brigade Commander, and uh, we'd like to get you to go across the river to the Pentagon and down to Fort Bragg, because today the Army, as you know, is de-emphasizing arts monuments and archives, and there's still a role for it. Well, I think that's a great point, and I thank you for your service to our nation, and let me just say, uh, back to my point of this being... uh, a cause. I don't know of a more effective way to influence public policy than to use a story about World War II, the most popular subject in any bookstore outside self-help stuff. (laughs) A story that no one knows about. The broad public doesn't. There are many scholars that are convinced because they know what everybody else does. And I can tell you George Clooney doesn't feel that way, and neither does Sonny, or they wouldn't be pouring the resources into this film to tell it for the first time, not to our most educated people, but to everybody, and make sure that this incredible, remarkable, exciting moment in history, a proud moment for us as Americans, um, is known to everybody, and in particular known around the world, that we've saved all these things and then gave them back. And the only way I know to honor what these men and women did during the war and honor their story is to put it to use. How do we do that? I believe that the key step is that the President of the United States, I don't care who it is, this is apolitical statements, has to, in my opinion, restate the words of General Eisenhower and President Roosevelt, that we will protect cultural treasures so much as war allows, and that we're going to show respect for other countries' things. Call to action for young people around the world that love gadgets. Are you telling me that in a world war, with 65 million people killed and no technology, that we can't do a better job than we're doing in places around the world today? That we can't figure out, I don't know, drones to, that can take photographs of you know, what year a penny was made from uh, up in the air and photograph these troops, whether they're good guys or bad guys or in between, that are driving across important monuments in Syria and other places for the war, war crime trials that should take place later? They did take place during World War II. They took place in Serbia, and there was successful prosecution of people that were ordering destruction of cultural property. 
So we can't solve every problem in the world, but I believe by the president taking the leadership, he's the only one that can do it, he's the CEO of our country, that it opens the way for the bottom-up work that's being done with, with uh, people that are being trained to make sure that they're heard. I, my fear is exactly what you've described. We have people doing some good work at the, at the worker level. And we have a lot of well-intended scholars and archaeologists and others that are constantly talking to State Department and Defense Department. But I believe when push comes to shove, if it's not cleared out from the top because it's the policy of our country to protect and respect cultural treasures, that we're going to see the effort winnow and winnow as we get into the difficulties that always come in these places that we're in. And I believe that the mere mention of this would so greatly impress the billion of people around the world that we upset, convinced that our failure to perform in Iraq was some anti-Islamic effort, that why we succeeded in Europe, for those that know it, was because we love Christian-related art. That's nonsense. We just didn't know who these men and women were, and we didn't know the legacy that we've inherited. This is our opportunity to make sure we reestablish the gold standard. And you all are the people that are going to cause that to happen. I've written these books because I love these men and women, but that was the only way to get a film done. And this film now is going to create worldwide visibility, and the politicians are going to know that everybody else has gone to see these things. And it's not going to be okay to do that anymore. So that's what I'm counting on. And uh, I'm hopeful that all of you all will hope spread the word about these remarkable men and women. One more question, and then I'm going to go sign books. Up here in the center. Thank you. In the occupation commands in Germany and Japan after the war, were there analogous units that tried to ensure that the occupation personnel uh, you know, respected the you know, cultural monuments uh, in those countries? Well, the Civil Affairs Division, as was commented on uh, both these people, yes, that was their responsibility. I mean, it was feeding people. It was, I mean, Dean Keller was as proud of what he did outside taking care of art by, he had a Jeep, so he sees people need bread. He's driving flour to the baker to make sure people are fed. Again, went over hearts and minds, helped the people. Um, There was a great order that General Bradley issued two or three months after the end of the war, that's, that uh, it was the second time he issued an order. As you can imagine, commanding generals are only used to issuing orders one time. Uh, and it was getting back to him that there were some sticky fingers among troops, not, not premeditated looting, but just picking stuff up, things that were quite, had clearly been spelled out were not okay. And he said, quote, we are a conquering army, not a pillaging army. And that's the law of the land that still applies today. No one's ever changed that rule. And it's one of the roles of the foundation is to work with veterans and families of veterans. They may have picked something up probably as a souvenir. That's been our experience. And help illuminate the path home so we can get these things back where they belong, whether it's our National Archives in College Park, Maryland, or the uh, Deutsche Historische Museum in Berlin where we've delivered something. Uh, We'll be making an announcement here in a couple of weeks about something else we've found related to Italy. Um, and so, you know, there are hundreds of thousands of things that are missing. Another thing this film's going to do is it's going to raise public awareness. There's not enough money in the world or enough detectives to go find all that's missing. But we don't have to. The film acts like a runner in a jungle banging pots and pans to flush out the tigers. And we only need people that have these things to know, call us or call National Archives or call somebody. And, uh, and I believe that's going to happen. I must say in closing... The best questions of audiences of all the places I go always end up being at the National Gallery, and I really appreciate them. Thank you so much. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.